Donald Trump called him tough. Rush Limbaugh read one of his articles live on his radio show. Ann Coulter tweeted that article to her one and a half million followers and declared, every sentence is perfect. Ladies and gentlemen, your host, former chief editor of the Jewish Press, Elliot Resnick. Welcome to the Elliot Resnick Show. With us today is Shmuel Sackett, director of the Am Yisrael Chai Foundation and previously one of the heads alongside Moshe Feiglin of Zohar Tzenu, Manhigut Yehudit, and Zehut. Before that, he was an active member of the Jewish Defense League, founded, of course, by Rabbi Meir Kahana. I actually met Shmuel 20 years ago after having read Moshe Feiglin's articles in the Jewish press for several years. I volunteered to help, and Shmuel invited me to his home on Long Island. He lived in America at the time, where he sat alongside me stuffing envelopes for an upcoming Manhigut Yehudit event, if I'm not mistaken. That's the price a man like Shmuel pays for working for an organization devoted to truth rather than one that operates on a $200 million budget with 17 different divisions and an equal number of secretaries on the payroll. Shmuel, I hope you're still not stuffing envelopes today, but either way, welcome to the program. Uh, Thank you very much. Always a pleasure to be here. And you want to know something? If stuffing envelopes will help the Jewish people, I'll do it 24-7. Well, (laughs) 24-6. I asked you to come on today mainly because I'm on your email list and you recently wrote an article that intrigued me. It was entitled, The Tchelet Revolution, Join the Blue Team. I know whole books have been written on this topic, but briefly, make the case for why a listener of this program should start wearing Tchelet. Well, uh, first of all, I'm very happy that we're discussing this because this is a topic that really has not gotten a lot of media coverage and I'm hoping that in the coming years will really uh, excite a lot of people. Look, I've been wearing tchelet, which is the blue string, for 30 years. And the problem is that tchelet is an integral part of the mitzvah of tzitzis. Nobody questions that. One of the strings, some say even two, but we won't go into the halachic uh, details, but at least one of the strings has to be blue. And that's how it was for approximately fourteen or 1,500 years until the Tchelet was lost. The whole discussion, what happened, the Romans, they allowed the dying of blue only for royalty. And if you were caught dying anything blue, literally it was off with your head. So uh, the whole blue dying industry was lost. Along with that, the Tchelet, I'm summarizing, but it has been lost for approximately maybe 1,900 or 2,000 years. And thank God, due to various wonderful Talmidei Chachamim, they have discovered or rediscovered the chilazon, the snail, with which they produce the unique blue dye. And they have been producing this and are convinced that the tchelet today is the real thing. You know, it's not just that Coca-Cola is the real thing, but you can have the real thing on your tzitzis as well. And as I mentioned, I got excited to this because you had stated at the beginning in the introduction that I was a member of the Jewish Defense League. But in addition to that, a proud student of the teachings of Rabbi Meir Kahana. Rabbi Kahana always taught us to open our eyes and to see the truth and to not just follow along with everybody else with what's happening and with with what's uh, politically correct and with what's accepted. And I opened my eyes and I saw this. Okay, I jumped on what I call the blue team, the tchelet, you know, added it to my tzitzis. And over the course of really the last 10 years, a lot of major rabbis have looked into this subject 
and have come to the conclusion that it's the real thing. And they're a little bit torn because on one hand, we don't like to change. We like to keep to the tradition. We like to keep to what's been given to us by our rabbis and so on. But it's not really something you could say, well, my rabbi didn't wear it. Fine. It wasn't around when your rabbi was around. This is something that's new, and therefore it's a wonderful thing. And I'm convinced that in the next 30 to 40 years, most of the Jews in this world will be wearing the tchelet as part of their census. Ezra's Hashem, and you took the words out of my mouth. I actually was going to suggest what you just suggested, which is that it's very different than other Chumras, quote-unquote, because I'm against, personally, the Chumra culture. I don't think it's good for us, generally speaking, to do things differently than our parents or our Abayim did. But like you said, this is very different than adopting of a new Chumra. It's something that was not available. Well, I don't even see it as a Chumra. The discussion of Tchela today is not a halachic discussion as much as it is an ideological one. Because halachically, everybody agrees Ideally, you must wear tchelet as part of your eight strings or four strings, double dova. At least one must be tchelet. That's clear. The question is an ideological one. And I tied it into, and a lot of people didn't like this, but I, I believe this to the bottom of my soul. It's the same discussion as to our view of the modern state of Israel. I have all respect for the people that have different chumras and different minhagim and do things differently, no problem. This is not that issue. It's an ideological issue, and we need to take a stand that God has given us a great gift, the gift of Bendirat Yisrael 75 years ago, and the gift of Tchelet is part of those things that are going to be opening up now that we have control of this great land. So like you were saying, you're not really besmirching your parents or your Abayim at all. And also, I should have mentioned, like Kevin saying, Chumra culture, it's not a Chumra. In this case, we're actually talking about a Mitzvah Daraisa. But you said it's an ideological issue. I'm a little bit concerned, though, if you make it an ideological issue, and it's very possible that it is, but if you talk about it in that fashion, you're possibly scaring people away from doing it. You know probably even more than I do, but I know at least some rabbis who are wearing, who wore it or wear it, Rosalman Nechemia Goldberg, Israel Belsky, these were not Zionistically inclined rabbis, but they did it based on the halachic evidence. And I think perhaps it's better for us to keep it maybe just a halachic issue rather than an ideological issue. Because if you make an ideological issue, I think you scare people away. Whereas if you just focus on the halachic issue, you say, look, Belsky wore it, Salman Nechemia Goldberg wore it. I think one of the sons of Shlomo Zalman Auerbach wore it. And you probably son in law. Son in law. Son in law, sorry. Okay. And you probably know even more rabbis who wear it. it have nothing to do with Zionism, just they think it's proper. Correct. However, the overwhelming majority is definitely tied to the religious Zionist camp, but it's going to open their eyes. And that's a good point when you make. And that's why I think in the next few years, certainly a few decades, it's going to move over and really become accepted because if we, and maybe that's, that's our challenge. Our challenge is to move it from the world of ideology to the world of halakha. That would be beautiful. Right now, I think it's predominantly an ideological issue. I do. I, I see it as that. But that's a challenge I accept, to move it into the realm of halacha. And Good I know point. there's uh, someone who lives in the community, his nephew, I forget his first name, his last name is Hellman. He wrote a whole article, a long article on Tcheles for an Aguda associated publication. I don't remember what it was. but So there's a little openness, I think, in that world to listening to pure halachic arguments. Yeah, it's definitely, as I mentioned, uh, opening itself up in areas that, that were closed before. 
because, as I told you, the evidence is overwhelming. It's not like some crazy guy, you know, found something. You should know, I'll tell you a funny story. As I told you, I've been wearing Tchelet for third, probably 32 years. And I was wearing the Tchelet known as the Red Zinner Tchelet at the beginning. It was before this, this new wave. So a friend of mine who also had been wearing Tchelet for that long, he came back from the hotel one day and he says to me, Shmuel, good news and bad news. The good news is I saw quite a few people by the hotel wearing Tchelet, not just me. The bad news is they're all Meshuganas. <laughs> you know, the guy with the chauffeur and the guy with, with his with his camel parked uh, and around uh, donkey, you know, camel, a donkey parked outside. You know, the guys wearing the white robes who think they're, I don't know who. And uh, the, <laughs> those were the guys wearing Taylor 30 years ago. Fine. But now, like you mentioned, some major Rabbanim and, of course, uh, Rav Herschel Schachter, who is a major, major, major posseg, wears it, proudly wears it. And Bezrat Hashem, slowly but surely, we'll get this across to the mainstream. I wonder if you could also talk a team about the transition from Rav Herzog to the rediscovery of Tchelas, because Rav Herzog, the first chief rabbi of Palestine, I think one of the rabbim of El Yashiv, if I'm not mistaken, he wrote a PhD on Tchelas and thought he found the snail that produced Tchelas, but he had certain problems, he thought, that prevented him from coming to a firm conclusion and then 50 years later, this organization, Psyltskeil, came around to solve these issues. I wonder if you could talk about from Herzog in the 1930s or 40s till late 80s or early 90s. So the first one to come across this was, of course, the Radzina Rebbe. That was about 150 years ago, I believe. And he was so committed to searching and uh, finding the Tchelet, he actually moved from Radzin to Italy to be by the seashore and to study the fish. And he was really studying this uh, area very, very much. He came to the conclusion that the fish that is used to produce tchelet is the cuttlefish. Now, the cuttlefish emits like a black dye in the water when it feels it's in danger. That's its uh, weapon, if you will. It emits this black kind of a dye, and that clouds the area and enables it to escape a dangerous situation. So from that black dye, through using various um, uh, chemicals, they were able to switch it to blue. Anyway, it was based on that. Rav Herzog's detailed uh, chuva writes that it's not the cuttlefish for various reasons, because he felt that too much of the color was produced in the lab as opposed to by the fish itself. And therefore, he felt it was not right. And then the Petit Tchelet came across and found the snail, the Munich's, I forget the name of the actual snail. Chocolates or something. Something like that. I forget the actual name. It's a long, long name. Too many letters for me. But again, that has all of the qualities and history behind it because this snail was used for dyeing blue as an industry for hundreds of thousands of years. Anyway, a whole long proof. And again, it's been accepted by uh, major, major uh, Rabbanim. Look, what, like you mentioned, Ravbelsky, Ravbelsky, when he was asked straight out, do you feel it's possible? He said, 100% certain that this is the real Tchelet. And, you know, he wasn't saying maybe, and it's possible, and you never know. He was convinced 100% to its authenticity. And that's a reliable source, very reliable source. I interviewed one of the heads of Psyl Tchelet, which is the main organization producing Tchelet nowadays. And he told me, I think the Gemara says that at the time there were 
merchants who try to cheat people and they would take a blue dye from a plant and would pretend that it was really tcheles because it was very similar. So he said they tested in the laboratory. Not only are they similar, they're actually molecularly identical. So he said, no wonder the Gemara says that they look so similar. The Gemara says only Hashem could tell the difference because he says, yes, they, we actually get tested now molecularly and they're basically identical. The big difference is you won't see it right away, but that blue fades. That one made from the plant fades, while the tchelet made from the snail does not fade. And I've washed my tzitzis uh, many times in a washing machine, hot water, detergent, all that stuff. It's the same blue color today as it was the day I bought it. So there's proof. While in the other one, when I when I would wear the radziner tchelet, which is, was first had, that definitely changed. The color, first of all, as I was tying it, the blue was coming off on my hands. So I, I looked at my hands and said, oh, this is not good. <laughs> but anyway, the tchelet today is 100%, doesn't budge after, like I mentioned, washings and so on. It doesn't fade. I think the Kabar says that also. It's one of the signs of Tcheles is that it's a very long-lasting dye. Correct. One of the most fascinating parts of the rediscovery of Tcheles that I found is, I think one of Herzog's main problems, and still Tcheles' main problems originally, was that this dye seemed to be purple. And they couldn't Correct. figure out, it was meeting all the other signs, but somehow it's purple instead of blue. They couldn't figure out why is it purple instead of blue. Maybe we got it wrong. And then one day, I think accidentally, instead of trying to get this Tcheles in a laboratory, they decided to do it outside for whatever reason, which is where they would have done it, in the times of the, of the base of Migdash. And lo and behold, when you do it outside, it actually turns blue because the sun actually makes it blue. So oh, it just, nice. it was like an accidental discovery. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Very interesting. I, I believe it's what Baruch Sturman told me when I interviewed him. If not, I read it somewhere. He would know. He would know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, I want to switch to some other topics, if you don't mind. You founded a new organization a few years ago called the Avichai Foundation. What does it do? I'm Yisrael Chai, not Avichai. I'm Yisrael Chai. I'm sorry. That's okay. Okay. That's okay. Avichai is a great organization. A friend of mine is on the board of directors. They do wonderful things. But we're Amisol Chai Foundation. And what we do in a nutshell is we support projects that build the land. We support farmers. We support the types of projects that don't get funding from anywhere else. They don't get government funding. For example, one of the main groups of people we help are farmers, Israeli farmers. These guys really don't get the help they deserve from the government. And it's so important because they're working the land. They're keeping the land in Jewish hands. There's a gigantic war over the land in Israel. Whatever is not taken by Jews is taken by Arabs, Bedouin. And there's physical clashes over the land. And we help the Jewish farmers plant fruit trees. We've planted over 500,000 new fruit trees in the last few years. And also it provides a parnasa. That's why we do fruit trees. They produce grapes. They turn it into wine, olives, olive oil. And we've helped farmers with plant bananas, mangoes, avocados, everything. Peaches on the Golan. We did about 20,000 peach trees on the Golan. Uh, whatever we could do to keep the land in Jewish hands. That's one project. Another project is we help search and rescue. People don't realize, and I will completely stun you with this number, and I promise you it is not exaggerated. Approximately 4,000 Jews go missing every year in Israel. Missing. The family do not know where they are. We're not talking about missing for an hour. At least 48 hours, 4,000 Jews go missing in the little Medinat Israel. Now, of those cases... Approximately 300 to 350 are very serious cases where they're really, really lost. 
The police don't have the manpower. And years ago, I believe 23 years ago, my dear friend Yakutiel Ben Yaakov, known as Mike, he started a group called the Israel Dog Unit, where they have highly trained dogs and they have search and rescue with amazing volunteers. And they go out seven days a week. Yesterday on Shabbat, they have received a critical case. And uh, with the Psaac of Rav Dov Lior, they go searching on Shabbat, get into their vehicles, because with someone who's missing in a high-risk case, every hour is crucial. Remember, these guys that are missing, they don't have water with them. They don't have, you know, protection against the sun. They could dehydrate in a very, very short amount of time. A lot of these cases are people who have Alzheimer's who just simply walk out the front door and get onto a bus and get off somewhere and are literally lost in some forest somewhere after that. They take a walk. Or they are people who want to hurt themselves and they don't want to do it in their living room, so they decide to do it somewhere else. Or it could be people that went on some kind of a hike and got lost. And again, the clock is running. So we support this group. We built for them a center up north to search. You know, we know this famous case of Moishi Kleinerman, that young boy that has been missing over a year. It's now close to a year and a half. Nothing. Haredi boy missing from uh, the Meron area. Went there for a Shabbos and spoke to his parents before Shabbos and nothing, nothing since. So anyway, that's another project that we support. These are the kind of things that we support because they don't receive any funding from anywhere else. And I've taken upon myself to do what I can to really help these causes. Okay, before I go on, I don't want to forget, if someone wants to join your email list, how does he do that? So the best thing is our website is amyisroelchai.org. Yisrael is with an O. I used to spell it with an A, but then somebody told me that in America, people spell it with an O. So fine, amyisroelchai.org. And there's the website. You'll see all the things. You could add your name to the uh, newsletter. We send that uh, usually around one, just around once a week. Okay. Three months ago, a group of settlers burnt a few dozen cars in Hawara. I have no idea how to pronounce it, but that's the way it's spelled in America. And that attack elicited condemnations from all mainstream Jewish organizations, including the OU. You wrote an article in response to that with a different take. What was that take? The take was that you have to understand what's going on. And on a regular basis, first of all, you know, it's very easy to condemn. Yeah, you know, we shouldn't do these type of things and Jews don't act that way and we need to be better than them. And as my Rabbi Khan used to say, the problem with being better is it often means you're deader, better and deader. And uh, while we don't, of course, advocate random violence, the residents of Huara need to know that if they're going to act in a violent way towards Jews, then we will do the same against them. Because what you see reported on the news is probably one act of every 50 that is actually perpetrated by them on a daily basis, literally daily. They are throwing stones. And when I say stones, they're not throwing pebbles. They're throwing rocks. They're throwing bricks. They're dropping cinder blocks from rooftops. Now, there are four settlements that have to drive through Chawara every day. Harbracha, Yitzhar, Elon Mora, and Itamar. There's approximately 3,500 families that live in those four Yishuvim. So we're talking about, they have a lot of kids, 15 to 20,000 people in those four Yishuvim. 
and they're driving through those areas for school, for the doctor, for the supermarket. There's no supermarket in those four areas. They have to go, they mostly go to Ariel to do their shopping. So you have a woman, you know, going her supermarket shopping, bringing her kids to the doctor or, you know, whatever, and driving through Hawara and taking their life into their own hands. So it's very nice for the OU to sit back and, uh, you know, issue some condemnation. But I like to see Rabbi Hauer drive through Hawara on a daily basis. I don't believe he would be so so nice. And obviously, the IDF needs to enforce the law, and they need to go in and, and set things straight. However, if they won't, then uh, the residents have to do it themselves. So yes, I came to the support of the Hever who did it, who did it out of uh, no choice. And the Arabs in those areas need to know that the Jews not only have a good head, but we have and willing to use the Jewish fist as well. I know at least right after the attack, the Arabs calmed down a little bit. Have they gone back to their normal ways? Or uh, Unfortunately, there was a shooting last week in Khawara. And it's, you know, Esav Sonet Yaakov, and this is who they are, and it's not an easy situation. Really, the army needs to come in, because you're right, you know, the, the settlers will go in, and they'll uh, burn some tires and uh, break a few windows, and okay, it's uh, quiet things down for a while, but there's tremendous terror in those areas, tremendous hatred in those Arab towns, and it's really going to take the army to do what needs to be done. I understand that the Israeli government, when the settlers take the law into their own hands, really cracks down on them. So it's not like it's, it's not something, something you just even do really easily. If you do these type of things, you might be in jail for five, ten years. Is that correct? Unfortunately, unfortunately. But you know what I said? That's either being in jail for five years or being in the ground for the next 5,000 years. Which is better? Right. Sometimes it almost seems like the Israeli government is more passionate about stopping settlers from building a little home on a hilltop than it is about stopping Arab terror. It doesn't only seem that way. It is that way. But what's interesting is it's been that way for many years, even when Likud was the real Likud, led by Begin and Shamir. Now, Begin and Shamir came from a background that not only endorsed, but actually carried out events like this. Begin was, of course, the head of the Etzel, the Irgun, and Shamir was the head of the Lechi, known as the Stern Gang. And these two individuals were referred to as terrorists for many, many years. And you would think that they would have been more agreeable or understanding, is a better word, to what was happening in those areas. Unfortunately, although they were great individuals who accomplished amazingly brave and courageous things, when they entered the world of politics, they uh, calmed down a little bit too much. And you know what? It just shows what happens across the world. The right wing always bends over backwards to try to appease the left. And the left wing, what they do is they say what they have to say, and they don't make any changes. They don't apologize. They're vicious at times. It's the right wing that always says, you can't talk that way. You have to be careful what you say. It's a shame because we need to stop being politically correct and do what needs to be done. The problem is everyone's afraid. Right, like these recent protests in Israel. So I think the right is protesting now. But I asked someone, has anyone on the right threatened to close down Ben-Gurion Airport the way the left did? And if they don't, they're not going to win. Correct, correct, 100%. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you a conversation I had 
before the Gush Katif expulsion, I was in America at the time, and F.E.A. Tam, who himself, <laughs> tough guy, he was part of the Entebbe raid. He was a top guy in the Israeli army, and he was at the time a minister in, in the government. But then he had left the government, they were, they were trying to fight against the uh, Gush Katif withdrawal and so on. And there was a meeting of all like American Jewish leaders. And, and I was at this meeting. There was maybe 40, 50 people in this meeting. And he kept saying that we're going to do whatever we can to stop the uh, withdrawal and make it happen. But we will not go against the soldiers. We will not violate the law. So I asked the question. I said, let me ask you one question. I said, let's say there's 100,000 people marching into Lushkatif, you know, they want to be there and join uh, the fight. And standing outside of Lushkatif, there is a 18-year-old chayelet, you know, a nice uh, IDF female soldier standing there, you know, and she draws a line in the sand and she says, listen, no one is allowed to cross this line. What do we do? You just said we don't go against what the soldiers say. So he said, we have to listen to her. So 100,000 people are standing there, and there's one soldier that says, don't cross his line. We have to listen to her. I said, you lost Gush Katif. It's going to take less than a week for Gush Katif to fall. He said, you don't understand what's going on? I said, I'm telling you, this is what will happen. And if this is the attitude, I'm not wasting my time. I'd rather grab a pizza across the street. I got up, and I left the meeting. And that's exactly what happened. It took not a week, four days, four days for the IDF to throw out 10,000 people from Gush Katif, 10,000 people. And the rest is history. You need to stand up. You need to take a stand. And believe me, we pride the fact that uh, it was done peacefully and everything was wonderful. Try to evict one family from, let's say, Ramat HaSharon, uh, a guy built an illegal house. You know, and there are quite a few of these homes that have been built illegally, not just in Yitzhar, but in Ramat HaSharon, or where I live in Herzliya, a guy yeah, he built in an extra part of his house, and he's been receiving different letters. And he doesn't, he says, listen, it's built already too late. Try to send in a couple of policemen to evict that family. It won't be pretty. Yet yeah, 10,000 Jews were thrown out of their homes in four days. Ramat HaSharon is a leftist area? Yeah, p- predominantly leftist area. Right in, right in the center of the country, next to Kfarsaba, Ranana. It's five minutes from Ranana. I think Mir Kahana used to talk about, I think it was him, who said, if these leftists were honest, I think a lot of these people's homes are actually built on Arabs' homes that fled in 48. Most of the West Bank was empty land. That was, you know, first of all, of course, the land is for ours because Hashem said it's ours. But if you want to go, according, if you're leaving Hashem out of the picture, Chas Shalom. The West Bank was empty. The areas, a lot of areas that leftists live in were not empty. They actually were occupied by Arabs. So if you want to be honest about taking over Arab land, the leftists should be giving up their homes, not the rightists. 100% true. The fanciest neighborhood in all of Tel Aviv is called Ramat Aviv. Ramat Aviv is built on an Arab town called Sheikh Munis. And how did they get Sheikh Munis? In 1948, they threw the Arabs out of there. Get out of here. And the Arabs ran for their lives, and they built these beautiful luxury apartment buildings and Tel Aviv University, built on Sheikh Munis Arab land in the heart of Tel Aviv. 
And I, I always say it's an absolute miracle that Hashem had the Arabs run away in 48. Imagine if they had they stayed. There were 600,000 Arabs. They would have had half the seats in the Knesset. Now, it's bad enough when they have 13, 14 seats. That's why we've had five elections in the last five years because of the Arab parties. But imagine how they not fled. What would the country have been like? Uh, it's a good question. <laughs> but, you know, that's why Hashem is on our team. And it's good to know that when we do stupid things, we could fall back on a Vinu Sheba Shemayim that doesn't let us collapse. He's there to catch us when we fall. Right. Okay, I know you don't like to focus on all the bad that goes on in Israel, so I'm going to make sure to end the interview with a positive question, but uh, one more negative one. How do Israelis like you tolerate the status quo? Jews die on a regular basis in Israel at the hands of murderous Arabs, but nothing is ever done about it. Israel is 10 times stronger than Hamas and Fatah, can easily make them surrender unconditionally if it wants it to, but it doesn't. It never fights to win, never even tries to win. It just fights until Hamas and Fatah are ready to sign yet another ceasefire agreement, and then it stops. It's insane, and I know you, Shmuel, and hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of other Israelis also think it's insane, and yet the situation continues. How do people like you tolerate it? First of all, it's not just me, and it's not just the Jews in Israel. Jews all over the world should feel the pain of when a Jew is killed in Israel, in Yerushalayim, or anywhere else for that matter. And excuse me, I felt the pain when I was in New York as well. And that's one of the reasons why I moved to Israel, because I know it's a process. And the changes that we want are not going to happen overnight. It could be a lot faster with a lot less Jewish blood agreed, and Bezrat Hashem, it will happen very, very soon. But by me being there and having children and grandchildren and so on, the demographic is changing and moving in our direction. We're having more children. The leftists are, are having much fewer children and are leaving the country in big numbers. So when you look towards the future, the way to keep yourself sane is to understand that this is a process and this takes a long time. And uh, again, we have the keys to open the door now. This is something that could be done much faster with a lot less Jewish blood. But Bezrat Hashem, I'm there not to just live in Israel. I'm there to make changes. And that's what we need to do. We need to bring all of our like-minded brothers and sisters to Israel to not just live and, you know, eat a lot of falafel and shawarma, but to make the changes that uh, are necessary for these type of things not to happen anymore. Before I get to my last question, I want to ask you about your activities before the Am Yisrael Chai Foundation. Because for approximately 20 years, you were working with Moshe Feiglin on taking over the leadership of the country either by taking over the Likud party from within or by giving the people an alternative party to vote for, which you called Zahut. Both projects seem to have failed. Why did, did they fail? And do you think change can come through the political process, considering how determined the left is in Israel never to see power, even if they're not having so many children, they are determined never to see power. So, Look, that's a wonderful question. And I still believe we need to be active on the political scene. I have stepped back a little bit from the world of politics because it's such an alma de shikra. It's such a false world. And I'm a man of action. And what I'm doing now, you know, when we plant trees and we grab another hundred acres of land and it keeps it in Jewish hands, and when we help with the search and rescue and find Jews that have been missing for 
seven, eight, nine days and find them in a miraculous way, it's real. While politics is so so fake at times, and the wheeling and dealing under the table deals, it just it just got to me. I, I need to do. I need to be involved in something real. That having been said, we do need to stay in the world of politics and make the sweeping changes because we can't just leave it into the hands of these people who don't really believe that Hashem is running the world. And look, we tried. We tried with Likud, and we had several successes along the way. You're right. The overall dream failed, and the man enough to admit it, although Moshe Fenglin was elected to the Knesset, and several of the people that we support in the Knesset are there, and we're proud of that. Uh, but as a, as a general plan, it didn't succeed what we wanted. But, you know, when it finally happens, we're going to look back and say that there's no question that what we did helped along the way. You know, I'll tie this back to our opening discussion on Tchelet. And that is, even though today we see that the Redzina Rebbe was incorrect with the cuttlefish and so on, there's no question that it was his groundbreaking work that helped to arrive at the trailer where we are today. I mean, do you remember the computer we all had, your first computer? It was this big, gigantic thing. that The screen was bigger than, I don't know, your refrigerator. Okay, and uh, because of that, the iPhone came 20 years later. So things break through and it takes time. And there's no question that what we did, I believe, had a positive effect on the nation. Hashem decides when things will happen. We do our hishtadlus. We do our effort. Hashem decides when it'll be successful. So am I disappointed? Sure, I was disappointed. I would have liked things to turn out differently. But Kaddish Baruch was a lot smarter than Shmuel Sackett. And he'll decide when it is. We have to keep fighting. I'm fighting now more on the ground with uh, facts on the ground and really battling it out uh, on what's happening there. But Bezrat Hashem, eventually our political dream will succeed when Hashem knows. And even in a culture where speaking certain ideas in public get you arrested or banned from Knesset, even with that, it could be overcome somehow? It has to be overcome. It has to come that way. Every one of our prophets were thrown into jail. All of our, the great rebbies, Tell me one great Rebbe who wasn't jailed. People don't even realize. Do you know the Vilda Gon sat in jail? Do you know the Chazon Ish sat in jail? Do so, we know uh, why? No, I don't know why. That's interesting. Okay. <laughs> That's interesting why. But I would imagine he uh, said something against the government. You know, the government in those days didn't like you to say things. Look, yeah. what's the big yantif of the world of Chabad? Yudtet Kislev. Yudtet Kislev is when the Rebbe, the first Rebbe, left prison. So you have to take a stand. You cannot be afraid of taking a stand. And if that is what is required of you, take it from a guy who sat for a little while, not not much. It's, let me tell you something. You do a lot of learning when you're in jail. You sit, you catch up on your dafyomi, you catch up on your, uh, a lot of svarim that have been, you know, on your to-do list. So it's not the end of the world. You have to have masirat nefesh. And there's 25,000 chayalim buried in the ground, that gave the ultimate sacrifice, will only get the Beit HaMikdash and the restoration of the Davidic dynasty through self-sacrifice. Everybody on their level, but we have to show Hashem we're prepared to pay the ultimate price. 
Okay, so you already covered some of the material I was going to ask, but you write many positive articles. It's so positive that you even convince, you even almost convince people like me who are inclined to not be so positive about Israel's future. So I want to end the interview with you, Stuart, making your positive case with all the bad that's going on in Israel, politically, culturally. You've argued repeatedly that we, that we should not be focusing big picture on these things. We should be focusing on something else. So give us the big picture, what we should be focusing on, in your opinion. The big picture is that we are in the Hevle Mashiach, which is the birth pangs of Mashiach. You know, a woman is pregnant, she's in uh, pain and morning sickness, and then actually giving birth is the, the height of pain. Uh, it wasn't until I witnessed that that I understood what the bracha of Shaloh Asani Isha was. <laughs> Not easy. I don't think I could do that. I, I scream in pain when I stub my toe. So call a kavod to the women of the world. But it's a process. And then after all this, after the pain of pregnancy and the pain of childbirth, what do you get? You get this little, little, I don't know, thing that doesn't really do anything. And you know, it screams its head off. And because of that, you won't sleep anymore. And uh, it's, it's a process. And it takes a long time. And I see Medina Yisrael as the same exact thing. It's a process. There are birth pains, there are pregnancy pains, there are delivery pains. Israel is an infant, 75 years. But you know what? Forget about the first few years. The first time I was in Israel was in 1979. I remember it like it was yesterday. There was no coffee shop. There were no high-rise buildings. There was nothing. There were very few cars on the road. There were a few highways. There was nothing, absolutely nothing. We're talking about 40 years ago. And in the last 40 years, what Israel has transformed itself into, yes, you could focus on the negative 100%, and we need to fight that negative, and we need to stop that. But look what we've done in the last 40 years. Israel is a world leader in medicine, in technology, in science, in so many things. Across the board, everyone's looking to Israel. I don't know if you saw it today. Intel just announced they're going to be investing $25 billion, That's the letter B, like boy. $25 billion in setting up new factories in Israel for their microchips. Microsoft Research and Development is in Israel. Google is in Israel. All these companies are there. Need I tell you about Waze? And need I tell you about, I live in Herzliya. Apple just built two buildings, not offices, two buildings to house Apple research and development in Israel. The world is turning to us for our brains, our technology, and there's more Torah studied in Israel today than ever before in Jewish history, ever before. So it's not that I focus on the positive. How can you ignore it? How can you ignore the amazing things what's happening? It's a wonderful, wonderful life. People are happy. Kids are getting educated properly. Yes, I could also speak for the next 20 minutes about the bad things, but it's how you choose to look at things. We're a young country, an infant really. What's 70 plus years in terms of world history? A baby. And therefore, this baby is growing. I look at the future. I look at the potential. 
And Bezrat Hashem, all we have to do is work out a couple of things, important things, no question. And Mashiach is just waiting for us to open that door. If I could ask just one last brief follow-up question. If I could just ask you to elaborate a teeny bit on the Torah part, because I think some of these people don't appreciate that. Your average Israeli leftist 70 years ago would have been very anti-religious. And it's my impression from reading and speaking to many people that today your average leftist, your average Israeli is much more open to tradition and Torah than he was once upon a time, even maybe in 79 when you first moved there. Is that true? Yes, it is 100% true. As I mentioned, I live in Herzliya, which is not a, you know, it's not Ramat Pechemish, it's not Yerushalayim, yet our show Friday night is full. A lot of guys coming in, they don't come back on Shabbos Day, okay. Uh, well, not okay, but I'm just telling you, Friday night, they're, they're in shul. And they're in shul with jeans and t-shirts, and their wives lit candles Friday night. Look, let's be honest, I can't eat in their home, but there are brothers and sisters. The fact that they're coming to shul Friday night shows that the pitala yin is there. Nobody's forcing them. Unfortunately, the movies are open. They can go to the movie theater. But they're not. Friday night, they're coming to shul, and they're going to, uh, you know, have some Shabbos dinner of some kind. And it's a beautiful thing. There's just one thing that the liberal Jews are afraid of. They don't want to be coerced into anything. And we're also against coercion. We're not going to force it down your throat. We're into chinuch. Chinuch is education. If we educate, if we show love, if we show tolerance and acceptance, come to shul. I'm not looking at how you're dressed. I am not judging you. Come into shul. Sit here. Here's what page we're on. The chance that they'll come and they'll remain in shul is high. It's a beautiful thing. They they respect religion. They give brit uh, milah to their children. They all attend the Pesach Seder. They fast on Yom Kippur. They put a mezuzah on their door. It's there. We just need to magnify it, focus on the good, and really, it's, it's, it's incredible. The potential is simply incredible. I think you wrote in a recent article, if I'm not mistaken, 98% of Israelis have a Seder? That is correct. It's unbelievable. And uh, yeah, again, they're at a Seder. Now, again, their Seder no, is different than our Seder. I, I'm not, you know, naive. So, so 98% is an incredible number. I it's mean. an incredible number. They're sitting in yeah. the, that's right, they're sitting and having a Seder. I mean, I, I'm friendly with a lot of these secular people, and they tell me, Seder, they fast on Yom Kippur, they come to Shul, Kol Nidre in the Ila, we call it the bookends, the beginning and the end. They have no idea, <laughs> they have no idea that this davening starts at seven in the morning. They show up around five. Listen, what can I say? Look, we have to make a difference between one thing. Ignorance versus rebellion. Most of the Jews are just ignorant. They haven't been educated properly. That's our fault. We haven't taught our brothers and sisters what it means to be Jewish. The 2% are fighting. Okay, with those, we have to act differently. You fight against God, you fight against me. But the 98%, their hands are out. We have to bring them in. They're there. They're there. All right, that does it for us. If you want to look up the article I mentioned in the interview, the author's name is Rabbi Meir Hellman. I will have a link to the article. It's actually a mini booklet rather than an article in the episode description. And if you Google his name, Rabbi Meir Hellman, and the words Cheles, you will see that he gave a presentation at an Agudas Yisrael Yachikal in Yushalayim. 
So like I mentioned, this is not something just restricted to the religious Zionist crowd. It is being discussed and adopted by regular yeshiva circles also. And I'll just mention two other quick points on Tcheles. I think I got these from Rav Shechter from YU. First of all, he told me, Suffolk Daraisa Lechumra. Tcheles is a mitzvah Daraisa. So even if you think the identity of the Tcheles is uncertain, you should err on the side of caution, he said. And second of all, the Gemara says that if you wear the wrong Tcheles dye, it's no worse than wearing a white string. In other words, even if Petil Tcheles, the organization, has it completely wrong, and it's unlikely that it has it completely wrong, but even if it does have it wrong, you haven't lost anything. Worst case scenario, you're wearing the wrong tcheles, but you're still fulfilling the mitzvah of tzitzis, because having the wrong type of blue is no worse than having a white string. And best case scenario is you're actually fulfilling a mitzvah de oraisa, and being part of the first generation in 1,500 years that is able to fulfill this mitzvah de oraisa. So I just wanted to mention that. I'm also going to post in the episode description a link to a book called The Rarest Blue, it's all about the rediscovery of Tcheles. I actually did not like the book so much. I think if you want to learn more about this, first of all, you just Google it. But also, Petil Tchelet is the main organization in Israel that produces Tcheles nowadays. They're the ones who rediscovered the snail, the Chilas zone from which the Tcheles is extracted in the very late 80s, early 90s. And there's tons of information on their website about Tcheles, all the many questions that come up about Tcheles, about the different shitos how to incorporate tcheles on your tzitzis. It's actually more complicated than you think. There are several shitos, and they have pictures of, of all the different shitos of how to incorporate the tcheles into your strings, and they're the ones that, that sell the tcheles. It is a teeny bit expensive. Uh, last I checked, I think it was like $80 for a pair of tzitzis, but it is a mitzvah deraisa. And again, we are the first generation in 1,500 years that is able to fulfill that mitzvah deraisa. So I should think it's worth the money. And finally, in the episode description, I'm going to post links to Shmuel Sackett's webpage, where you could sign up for his newsletter, as well as a link to an interview I did with Dr. Ari Greenspan, who is one of the people behind the rediscovery of Tcheles. I made a mistake when I was speaking to Shmuel, and I said it was Baruch Sturman. I did not interview Baruch Sturman, I interviewed Dr. Ari Greenspan, and she just wanted a very short introduction to the rediscovery of Tcheles. But of course, Petil Tchelet is the main website to go to if you want more information. And they spell Tchelet with a K, not with a C. Because that's the, I think, more academic way of spelling the Ches. It's the way the Russians uh, spell the Ches sound as well, if I'm not mistaken. Anyways, I hope you enjoyed the episode and have a great day or a great night, depending on when you're listening to this podcast. 